0: Alright, hey, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. So delighted that you've joined us today. Hey, can you high-five your neighbor real quick and say, let's go, Knicks? Can you do that? That's right. That's right, Andrew. I see you. Uh, High-five your other neighbor and say, let's go, Rangers. Game 7 coming up, everyone. (laughs) That's right. Hey, uh, Hey, we've actually been in this message series in the book of Nehemiah, who is a historical figure who actually comes to us at a very pivotal time in the history of the people of Israel. And if you know anything about the scriptures or the story of the people of God is they're constantly a people who are in disarray. So if kind of your, your belief about religious people or about Christianity is, oh, they, what they want to do is they want you to believe that, that life is about this make-believe land where everything in your life turns to health, wealth, and prosperity, I want you to know, sorry, you're probably in the wrong place. Because oftentimes the people of God find themselves in incredibly difficult predicaments. So for instance, if you look at this historical timeline, check this out, Nehemiah Actually comes to us this story actually comes in this green section that says Exile uh, until the Messiah." So the people of God they had not only been plundered by uh, by Near Eastern powers like Assyria. But eventually, the people, the the city of Jerusalem gets plundered and destroyed and decimated. The people are exiled to Babylon. And here we find Nehemiah, who's actually a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes around 444 BCE. And he's given this opportunity. He's heard the stories of God, God's promises to his people, that God is with his people, that he loves his people. And yet, Nehemiah's like, "Uh, we're in exile right now and the home that we felt like was promised to us, our land, our people have been displaced, and our place is in ruins. Somehow, God puts us on his heart, and in chapter one, we talked about how he prays to God, and then somehow, last week, we talked about how he's got favor with the king because he's the cupbearer to the king. He asks permission for the king to go forward and to be back to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem, and King Artaxerxes actually says yes So you can imagine, it's like this highlight. It's like, oh my goodness. Nehemiah's been been kind of uh, burdened by this passion to help rebuild the walls of his people in Jerusalem. And the king says, yes. But notice kind of what happens when Nehemiah, he re-enters now. He goes to Jerusalem and check out what happens. Look, it says, I went to Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah. After staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Now, of course, up to this point, we've seen his heart, the burden that he carries, the vision for renewal and rebuilding uh, uh, this place as well as for himself. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate. What's interesting is if you were to visit actually modern day Jerusalem, you'd actually be able to see these historical sites. Nehemiah was indeed a real person going through real life stuff, and look at what happens. He examines, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. So if you can imagine, he, he's finally able to confront the devastation of his homeland of this place that he'd only heard rumors of just how bad it is. And he's going and he's examining and he's seeing the ruins. He's seeing the devastation by fire. Uh, Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. We don't know why. Perhaps it was because of the rubble that existed. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Here he is. He's essentially going and he's examining what's happening throughout The city that has been absolutely devastated. I don't know if anyone was around during 9-11, but uh, it was such a dark time in our city's history. I remember a couple months after, and I was living in Queens at the time, and the smell of the city during that time, the subways, just uh, the fear and the silence spoke so loudly. Um, Finally, after a couple months, I decided to just go to the area in lower Manhattan where the World Trade Center was, um, just to witness it and to pray. And to see some, and uh, to volunteer for different relief efforts that were happening down there. I remember upon getting out of the subway and going there for the first time, sections were, were sectioned off because the rubble was just so massive. And just, I remember feeling so overwhelmed with grief and sadness. And I, I think to actually witness the rubble, it was something altogether different to see what was happening there, to see how bad it really was. And I can imagine for someone like Nehemiah, like here he is, he's going through the city and he always heard our rumors of Jerusalem being this place where, where God and the temple was and where God dwelt and where the people of God was teeming with life and with energy and all he sees are ruins. And, and notice what he does. Look at what he does. He says to them, You see the trouble we are in, he says to the people. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. It's almost like the ruins are so bad that the only thing he can do is just give this honest assessment of like, hey, you all see it, we all see it. Let's basically define reality right now. This place is in shambles. It's in ruins, it's been destroyed by fire. Now, one of the things I really appreciate about kind of this report of the first thing that Nehemiah does when he enters into Jerusalem, uh, and especially as New Yorkers, we, I, think, I think we appreciate this, right? He just gives it straight. He, he takes the time to examine. He's not going to sugarcoat anything. He's not going to put this bubble wrap around stuff and be like, you know, like, hey, look at what God has given to us, this opportunity before us. He, he doesn't. He doesn't like give this rallying cry to begin. Instead, what he does is he begins to examine, he begins to assess, and he begins to define how bad it really is. Now, I grew up in a setting where kind of the common refrain that was used is, if you don't have anything good to say, then... Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You've probably been there as well. Don't say anything. And yet here in Nehemiah, what he actually does is he's actually defining reality. You know what's interesting is that some people might believe that Christianity is this religion that wants you to believe in some make-believe fairy tale, and it's, it's some kind of uh, weird scheme to trick you into doing things with your life. But at the very heart of it, the very heart of Christian faith is actually a belief in truth, in reality, in reality. In fact, here's what Jesus says. Check this out. He says, "You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free." It's going to set you free. Only the truth will. It's when we're able to 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 actually confront and to admit the truth. It's it's only then that the truth will set you free. Uh, Max Dupree, who's a a business strategist and business management guru, uh, look at what he says about what leadership really is. He says, the first responsibility of a leader is what? To define reality. You know, one would think it's to, to cast a great vision. It's to get people rallied up and to inspire people. But actually, he says, actually the first step of any kind of leader, and here's what Nehemiah does, is he's actually defining reality. He's actually able to assess this is what really is. This is the pain and the predicament that we find ourselves in. Our place is in ruins. The fires have destroyed everything. This is where we are. Now again, I I think this is something that I actually really appreciate. It's so different than what I would have expected because I would expect Nehemiah to, to put on this happy face, to not bring down people's moods. But here he is and he just examines and he's taking an inventory of what is true and what is real. And here's what it reveals to us, is that at the end of the day, spirituality at the end of the day is really about defining reality. Spirituality is about presenting a compelling message about what reality looks like. And for Nehemiah, he's not gonna sugarcoat it. In fact, he's gonna examine and he's going to present the reality that we are in ruins. Uh, Again, I think as New Yorkers, we can appreciate this because this is what we want, isn't it? We want the truth. Hey, forget all the fluff. You know, we're not from California. We're New Yorkers. Give it to us straight. And isn't this what we appreciate? You know what? One of the the most transforming movements worldwide is the 12-step movement, Alcoholics Anonymous, that has now, you know, it's multiplied into several different anonymous groups, whether it's Narcotics Anonymous, Sexual Recovery Anonymous, Codependent Anonymous, right? There's all sorts of these different movements around the 12 steps. And I realize I've talked about it so frequently at church and I've talked about different steps, but I realize I've never actually presented it to our church community because it actually wasn't started too far from here. Started over at Calvary St. George's, very nearby on 20th Street and Park Avenue where there were a couple of people who took these Christian underpinnings and believed that the step towards transformation, which has now helped transform and allowed people to be in recovery, millions of people around the world to take life-transforming steps out of these beliefs, out of these steps that they have taken. Now, one of the things that I realize is that most people have never even read the 12 steps. And so what I thought we would do is actually look at the 12 steps here for all of us to examine ourselves. Now here's what I'd love for you to do. If you're not a Christian, here's what I believe. I believe you're going to read these 12 steps and be like, these are some powerful truths if in fact they were embodied in someone's life. Now if you are a Christian, here's what I think you'll be stunned by. You'll realize like, wow, I can see the Christian undertones for sure. And if these were embodied, I can see how transforming they would really be. Check this out. Look at what it says. Here's step number 1. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives had become unmanageable. Now, here's why this is the first step, right? Because one of the hardest things for anyone who's addicted to something is to actually admit it. It's like, listen, it's only two drinks a night. I've got this under control. I've got it under control until people around me start to notice things and say, hey, man, I think you need help. I don't need help, man. I'm not as bad as that guy or that person. Or look at how much they drink right? There's all these ways in which we as human beings, we are self-deceptive, and we tell ourselves a different story. But the first step, it always starts with admitting. Admitting, I don't have this under control. I am powerless. Look at step two. I came to believe that a power greater than ourselves, that's God, could restore us to sanity. Now, do you see the Christian underpinnings? I admit, I confess this, but now I'm actually going to say, I believe that a power greater could restore us. Number three, I made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Now, Alcoholics Anonymous has become this very ecumenical movement. But do you see this? It's, it's basically believing that God can do this, entrusting myself to a higher power, and turning my will over to that God. Now, number four, made a searching uh, and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Notice the word searching and fearless, like I'm actually going to get at the root of everything, of all the ways that I don't measure up. Look at number five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Now, it's getting a little bit harder here. All of these are already difficult. Well, after taking a searching and fearless inventory of ourselves, to actually go and confess the exact nature of our wrongs. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever journeyed with anyone in recovery before, Um, but when they actually practice this step, when they're talking about the exact nature of their wrongs, it's really stunning, because they're they're not just gonna confess like, hey, I'm really sorry for for ghosting you sometimes. It's like, no, 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 hey, I'm sorry for, for ghosting you. Whenever I would see your name and your message show up, I would get really anxious and I'd start to feel shame, because I knew that you were calling about whether I was doing okay, but... I would start numbing myself. And right when you texted, I would start feeling shame because I knew I had messed up. And then I would end up making another mistake. I would call my other friend that I knew was going to lead me down a a bad path. path. And it's it's really stunning to see someone confess the exact nature of their wrongs. Most of us, we would never dare do that, right? Because we've got everything together. We're too put together. And yet one of the steps, the steps towards transformation is to actually confess the exact nature of our wrongs. Look at step six. Step six is we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Step seven, to humbly ask God to remove all of our shortcomings. Do you see the heart of this? It it reeks of the Christian message, of dependence, of saying we need God. Number eight, made a list of all the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. The people in my family, the people who are close to me, the people at my workplace, my neighbors who I didn't listen to, whatever it might be, making a, a full list of all those people and look at what it says. And then to make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Some people have been so wounded that if I bring this up or if I even try to apologize, they don't want to hear any of it. So maybe those people I will not unless they're uh, willing and able to. But otherwise, I'm going to contact every single person I've hurt and I've wronged, and I'm going to confess to them. Number 10, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Like now my life has changed hopefully where so much of it now is about telling the truth, admitting it and asking for forgiveness. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and power to carry that out. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs to be the kind of people who would actually help in someone else's transformation. Now, if you've never seen this list before, and again, if you're a Christian, you probably read this and you're like, this sounds so much like what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, you can see how powerful and transformative this would be. But it's so difficult. Each step in itself takes a massive amount of change in each one of our lives. Now, here's what I'd love to point out. Check out specifically the steps that I'm gonna outline here. Because these steps in particular are about reality. They're about honesty. Look at, it says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. To actually admit that. I admit that I have, I'm powerless over my eating disorder. It's become unmanageable. To admit that I'm powerless over my addictions. And I'm powerless. That first step is so difficult. To come to a place to actually admit that. Look at step four. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. To look at every single crevice of my heart the ways in which I have not measured up, the ways in which I continue to hurt other people. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. It's not just like, hey, I'm sorry for how I was just a jerk. No, to actually share the exact nature of your wrongs, what you've really done. Number eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. Well, I really don't want to apologize to Uncle Jack cuz he is crazy. Well, it's it's actually all all people. Number 9 made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them and others. You know, there's a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous and it's this it's 90% of sobriety. It's honesty. It's just being willing to admit that I need help. This past weekend, uh, we had our marriage investment weekend and we had about uh, close to 30 couples come out and we were investing in our marriage. We talked about everything from recurring conflicts to attuning to one another. What does it mean to, to be one and to prioritize our marriage and exercises that would help kind of cultivate this kind of marriage. We talked about sex and lovemaking. We talked about all sorts of wonderful things. And you know, as I was, I was wrestling with this kind of message today on honesty and admission, I was reflecting back. There's another exercise that we didn't get to do, but it's, it's on forgiveness, on having the capacity to forgive. And I remember when I was first introduced to this skill of forgiving, and there's actually a, a way that we do this. We write a forgiveness letter, and, um, and it can be very thorough. And I was thinking about my own marriage uh, to my wife, Tina. And you got to understand, the family that I grew up in, and I've talked about it before, my dad and my mom, they were like roommates who were raising their kids. You know, That's kind of how they, there was no affection. Moreover, there was a lot of aggression, especially from my dad. My dad, who was someone who yelled incessantly, um, he was very violent physically, not only to my mom, but to us as well. And so you got to understand, like, like what's been imprinted in my mind and kind of in my own journey is witnessing this is how marriages are. And so as a result, when I got married, I made a vow that I would be nothing like my father. So I made this vow. I make this vow. And uh, you know, what's funny today is that uh, my son who's here, David, and my daughter Avery, they, they both, uh, whenever they need something, like a brownie or something, they know who to come to. <laughs> and uh, they often joke around how I, I basically, I have no, I've got no backbone. <laughs> I'm, I'm not much of the disciplinarian, and so I've left that to my wife. I mean, that's how extreme I've gotten, you know, as someone who, like, the, the background that I came from, you could imagine, Now, but there have been moments in my marriage um, where much to the surprise of my children as well as to Tina, been moments when like, I just get, I get so dysregulated, I get so flustered that I will just start raising my voice and it's like I'm yelling. And it's so flustering because my, my kids have don't experience me often like that. Again, they experience me as this like toothless wimp. Uh, but when all of a sudden they hear this, it's it's really scary and startling. And I noticed that when this happened that Tina would get incredibly dysregulated as well. And she'd get very scared. And I remember after kind of this happened, she said to me, hey, listen, like, you've crossed the line. Like, my father never yelled that way. And when you do that, you've crossed the line. And I was like, well, if you were to look at my family, like, this was nothing. I was basically whispering. (laughs) Like, this is nothing. Are you serious? This was nothing. She's like, no, seriously, like you've crossed a line. I don't think you understand the pain that I feel when this happens. And I was like, well, it's it's, it's like the only way you're gonna listen. It's the only way. Like I've tried everything else to get your attention. The kids won't listen. You won't listen. I just done everything I can. And she's like, I think you've crossed a line. So as this would happen again, I remember when this, this exercise of asking for forgiveness came into view. And it was an invitation for me to take a searching and fearless inventory. And so I wrote a letter. I wrote a letter and, you know, she had been telling me asking me this in tears to not cross this line, even if it just happened occasionally. I wrote this letter. The letter was essentially saying, I crossed the line. I'm sorry. Please forgive me this is what happens in me when this happens and I realize how painful it is for you and I'm asking for your forgiveness and I don't want this to happen again. I'm sorry for being defensive about it. I'm sorry for making excuses. I've crossed the line. You know, it's so easy to fool myself and be like, we've got a great marriage. We've got a great family thing going. And I think we do. But, like, to actually be confronted with, like, how much pain it was bringing Tina and and to begin to finally acknowledge without being defensive or explaining it away. You know, and there's, or to blame, to shift blame. What does it look like? To actually begin to just tell the truth. To take responsibility where we need to. And to say, I admit it, I'm powerless. I need you, God. I am powerless. Now, here's the thing. Like, Pete Scazzaro who's one of the mentors. He has this phrase where he says, the truth will set you free, but first, it will make you miserable. I mean, isn't that true? Like, anyone who's been on this journey of sobriety, it's those first few days where it feels like that first day feels like an eternity, but if we can just string together enough days, if we can just continue to live in the truth, not to be so deluded about ourselves, but to actually live in the truth. Nehemiah, when he's in Jerusalem, he's taking a fearless and searching inventory of what's happening He examines what needs to be examined. And look at what he says. He says, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and the gates have been burned with fire. He gives it to them straight. This is what he starts with. You know what I love about this? Look at what he says immediately after this. Now that we've admitted this, let's rebuild. Let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Let's rebuild what has been broken and ruined. Let's do this together. And together, they said, let us rebuild. Let us start rebuilding. I mean, don't you love this? See, it's not like he wallows in his moment of self-pity. He doesn't say, woe is me. Things will never change. Instead, he's like, let's do this now. Let's define what is. Let's live in reality. But now let's rebuild. And notice what he says after this. He says, This. He says, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. See, he begins to anchor this vision now of rebuilding with I've admitted I'm powerless. I've admitted I'm weak. And now I entrust the one who is strong, the God of heaven and earth. He will restore. He will rebuild. Let's do this. Yeah, Jack Miller, who uh, used to be a pastor in Philadelphia, there's this, this two statements that he would make about what the Christian message has always been about. If you could actually encapsulate it in these two sayings. And the first saying is this, is that we're actually more sinful than we dared to believe. It's actually Christians, this is what we believe. We believe that everyone is more sinful than we dare to believe. Now, I mean, isn't that an inclusive message there? Everyone is sinful, more than you believe, in fact. You're more sinful than that. You're more worse off. You probably have got different, like, closet sins or things that you hide from other people. And guess what? You're more sinful than you believe. One of the, the beautiful things about the statement is how inclusive it is, but it's also, in a, in a, honestly, in a town like this, it's honestly pretty refreshing. Because in, in a city like this, we are used to defining ourselves by like, I'm not, listen, I might be sinful, but you know who else is more sinful? It's those people who work in finance. You know, right? I mean, isn't that right? I'm an artist, okay? Like <laughs> finance people. Those lawyers Those pastors? (laughs) You know what's so refreshing about this statement, though, is it actually says, no, no, all of us are actually more sinful than we dare to believe. See, but the Christian message is also that you're more loved than you dare to hope. It's that you're actually probably worse than you think you are, but you're actually more loved than you think you are. Because as bad and as powerless as you might feel, this is why Jesus came. Jesus has come to say like, you can never earn this on your own. You could never achieve on your own. You could never reach a certain status on your own. You could never rebuild on your own. You could never heal on your own. But with Jesus, the one who has come to live and die on your behalf, to take your place and to set you free, He offers you this kind of love that's like, hey, you may be worse off than you think, but you're actually way more loved than you dare to hope. This is the Christian message. This is what we believe in. This is the Jesus that we serve. But here's what it takes. It it takes each of us to simply say, I admit it powerless. I need you. I need your love more than anything. That's the invitation for all of us. Just admit it. To not rest in your LinkedIn profile, your social media following, your IMDb I just added that one by the way. I don't I don't know if anyone has an IMDb, but anyhow. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Like like you all are so smart, so accomplished, so educated, so wealthy. Can we just all come correct? And say, God, I am powerless.